So, um, today, uh, Jessica and I, we're welcoming uh, Nanine McCool to uh, our uh, video re recording of the, the podcast. Um, Nanine uh, came across, uh, certainly my radar, um, because of uh, her interactions with uh, Anthony Robbins nearly a year ago now. And um, since then, uh, I've heard a lot about her views and her experience, which just really struck me as, as um, amazing aspects of leadership. And since what we're exploring <clears throat> is leadership, not just leadership today, but what do today's leaders need to be great leaders uh, tomorrow? And so that's what uh, we're going to be exploring. So Nanin, welcome. Um, we're you. delighted to, to, to have you with us. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So, um, I, I think that uh, for those followers of Anthony Robbins, the, the experience was one that probably a lot of people are, are aware of. Um, uh, but I think it would be worth just exploring that, that whole experience. Sure. Um, you know, it's almost been a year now. It's so funny that just kind of flown by but um so it was about a year ago this time that I just got this kind of crazy idea that I wanted to go to a Tony Robbins seminar I, I knew who he was um I'd always had a positive opinion of him but you know I wasn't I'd, I'd never bought one of his books I just sort of seen clips from him on YouTube so it wasn't like I was this you know a, a huge follower but I was impressed with him and I thought it was in, in the business I am with my husband, we are, we're transitioning. I thought, well, maybe I can go to the seminar and get some insight and grow up in some leadership <laughs> abilities. And um, so I, I went to, um, the seminar was in California, San Jose. And it was the very first day. Um, it's like a rock concert. I, I had no idea that it was going to be that, you know, 10,000 people. Yeah, it was, it was, I was surprised. And I had decided to go all out and buy the most expensive ticket and be on the floor, you know, down on the ground level where he walks around. And uh, it started, and from the start, he would say things that I found cringeworthy about the male-female dynamic. <clears throat> they struck me as very outdated. But, you know, I just thought, like anyone, you go and you take the good and you leave the rest. And um, it, uh, he, but there were a few things that really bothered me and we moved on. And then somewhere in the middle of the day, he, um, he started talking about, ooh, and his name just escaped me. Will, um, Will, someone, wasn't it? No, he was the, you know, the big casino magnet who had just been accused by lots of women of sexual misconduct, sexual harassment and sexual exploitation in the workplace. It was kind of in the news at the time. And he started talking about that. Steve Wynn, that's what it was. Steve Wynn, big magnet over here. And I really didn't know who Steve Wynn was. Um, and so I was trying to figure out how he was piecing this together and he segued into what a great guy Steve Wynn was into talking about the Me Too movement. And it wasn't the first time he'd mentioned the movement. And, but for whatever reasons, this time I just, 
I was sitting in my seat um, on the first floor and he was way across this huge arena and I just found myself on my feet yelling at him <laughs> saying, not yelling at him as in, you know, angrily, but yelling across the arena to get his attention, you know, like you've got it wrong. You don't understand, you know, you're, you, you just don't understand. And then at some moment I came to myself and thought, oh my gosh, what am I doing? And uh, tried to sit down, but by then, you know, his one of his, the people in, that follow him around with microphones had found me and handed me a microphone. And then we had the famous interaction that Butterscotch, who <laughs> happened to just pull out her phone and record it, um, she caught it almost from the beginning. And um, it just, it was a surreal experience, still is. You know, it's still, I was hoping that, um, I had was optimistic from the start that this was going to be a learning experience that he was going to challenge me and to, you know, help me see things from a different perspective. But the interaction just turned out to be very disappointing, um, you know, from my point of view of how enlightened Tony Robbins isn't about, you know, the Me Too movement and what it's about and women's experience in the workplace. Well, I think we're really keen to know, like, what's happened for you in the year that gone past but I guess I just wanted to throw in a quote that I came across when I was preparing for this interview which was from the Dalai Lama and it's when you talk you are only repeating what you already know but if you listen you may learn something new and it just really resonated with your experience there because I just think sometimes when people get into these positions of authority and and people look to them for that wisdom and insight perhaps you perhaps you stop thinking that you've got something to learn and you gave him an opportunity to listen and perhaps he didn't take it. And then he didn't allow himself to learn and grow and develop, which is probably the very thing that he promotes to people to do. I, yeah, I, I'd like to think that perhaps in a different setting, different day, you know, he might've responded differently. Um, it, you know, I think for whatever reasons, I caught him at his worst. And everybody has a bad day. I am disappointed that in the aftermath, there hasn't been more from him, but maybe he's still involved in that learning process. I mean, it's not something you're going to take in overnight, particularly when people are asking you to step back and see your, yourself from an entirely different perspective and probably one that's not as flattering as you would like it to be. So, you know, but I do, it was interesting to me that in that interaction, he seemed genuinely angry, which was surprising to me. And, um, and that's one of the things that really struck me was um, in, in watching that video of your, the interaction between the two of you, it seemed to me that it sort of metaphorically, he was acting out what is going on in a lot of organizations where um, leaders are, are challenged and that the only sort of the, the, the knee-jerk reaction is one of power. Um, how can I, because I'm uncomfortable, because I've been taken into a place that, you know, I mean, you can speculate whether that he was triggered in some way, but he, he was uncomfortable. And um, his resistance exercise with, with you, which in different circumstances could make an awful lot of sense um, in the way that he acted that out with you just seemed completely uh, wrong in the moment. 
I mean, Sent the wrong you're, message. You're, you're five foot eight or whatever you are, but he's six foot seven. So he's 11, 11 inches taller than you, and he's a big man at, at the best of times. So that, that uh, I mean, it's one of the things that really struck me about you and the, your courage. I mean, you were just in an experience, but I, I shouldn't think that there was all sorts of parts of you saying, run, let's go away from this. <laughs> um, and, and yet, he, he was using an exercise, as I say, in other circumstances, it would have been fine, but it wasn't fine there. And it did seem no. like a metaphor for something much bigger. Yeah, and in an odd sort of way to me that he proved my point in choosing that particular interaction. And, and I do um, think that what he acted out there does is is exactly what i've experienced perhaps not you know literally but certainly um you know the dynamic is very much the same um when i from the time i was i was in the military and i experienced that sort of um you know i'll be nice to you as long as you don't challenge me and i'll be nice to you so long as you play the role that i expect of you but if you try to step out of that and you know express yourself genuinely then there are always consequences and and they usually involve using power in a way that you know i never i i think is not really how power is expected to be used in those situations so i agree with you and and i do think that the the pushing exercise i didn't i had never watched him do that i didn't know what he was doing he told me to put my fist up so i put my fist up like this you know then he like turned my wrist um and i was clueless as to what was going to happen so as it played out, I kept thinking, okay, this is going to turn into something positive. And of course, by the time it was over, I was just, you know, I, I was at the point where, okay, this, there's nothing positive coming out of this. <laughs> you know, it's, he really doesn't get it, which was stunning to me. Although I guess it shouldn't be, but it was. Yeah. This, is, this is such an, a repeating story in so many different guises. And I, I, I um, you know, but I think it's it's important for us to acknowledge, for me to acknowledge, and it's 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 clear to me often daily here that I am also a product of the culture that creates that dynamic, and I have internalized a lot of it myself. So it's unpleasant for me to confront within myself the same tendencies about men and women, particularly in the workplace, that I myself have come across, and um, and it's sobering to realize that. You know, it's not as easy as saying, oh, um, you know, men have all the power and so they're the problem. It really is a cultural issue that um, it, we are all affected by it. And it's, it's frustrating to me, the level that I, have, I, that I have become a part of that very system that, you know, uh, marginalizes anybody who's, in my country anyway, white man, and I share most of the Western country. I mean, it's just, it's frustrating that how insidious it is because the industry that we work in my husband owns a construction company and now well now we're there are three of us are partners in it and um and there are no women in this industry you know where i'm in the administrative part of it i i don't do the actual construction work because they climb towers and i'm definitely afraid of heights but i think women would make great climbers i can't get any to come in i can't get a lot of applicants um, but even when someone puts in an application, I'm immediately struck with this 
overarching sense of, oh my gosh, if I hire one woman, it's going to be a problem. It's horrible that I catch myself thinking those things because I myself was on the other end of that when I was in the military in a, you know, a slightly different, but you know, this, it really is something that as we need to work on together, which was one of the things I hoped would come out of the Tony Robbins things that it created a, a discussion where we could all talk about our role in it. And I don't, you know, I don't know if that discussion is still ongoing, but it's a big problem. So are you, are you still being invited to kind of comment on that experience or was it sort of a short lived thing that you're invited on to different TV and um, I get invitations occasionally, not nearly as often as initially. Um, and I kind of, after about a week of it, I sort of s shut it down and said, you know, I'm really tired of talking about this. Um, and the media has its own sort of dark side. I'm not an anti-media person. You know, I, media is important. Um, but there is the whole, let's jump on the, the latest bandwagon and, and, you know, make our mark. So I did kind of shut it down after a while. But... Um, you know, I always maintain the attitude that if it's something that can help perpetuate an important and meaningful conversation, then I am happy. I, I, I want to be part of that conversation. Um, but, you know, if it's just, let's rehash the whole thing. It's kind of boring. Yeah. Do you, are you aware of any um, spaces where these conversations about cultural narratives are being, are being had in, in America? Because I think it, it, what when I was watching the clip, what I was trying to understand if there was anything good in what he was saying, and whether there was this tension between his kind of philosophy of we can change our lives, you know, we have that power. And I think what I felt like you were trying to say is that it's not about necessarily we do have to change ourselves, but we have to change the cultural narrative as well, and and that perhaps much more complex and that the Me Too movement is about changing the cultural narrative through women feeling empowered to change their own narratives or speak out or think about things differently. And so I think the trouble with a lot of this personal development stuff is it stays very much within the I and it doesn't look at the we and it doesn't ask those challenging questions to a broader cultural narrative that is at so many layers and so many intersections and takes in all of us. So have you kind of tried to find a space where you can have those conversations? I do. And, um, and obviously I don't go out and I think initially I started and tried to, you know, get people together to talk about it. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it's time consuming <laughs> I hate to say it. And, uh, um, and the interesting, it, it was so, it's so divisive in many ways that it was hard to maintain a civil conversation, you know, and, and this is on Facebook, obviously, because trying to get a group together in my community, is not likely to happen because where I live in the South, <clears throat> very conservative, traditional values here. But um, it is difficult because I think for a lot of reasons, but what I experienced was it, it quickly devolved into stereotypes and people separating into their own camps and, and, and a, a, a difficulty in looking inward to understand how what someone else is saying to us could, you know, isn't necessarily an indictment of us, but is, is an opportunity to sort of rethink our own 
you know, perspective that there is another side to our perspective, how someone else um, understands and hears us is an important part of communication that I think gets lost. But it's difficult to have that conversation, I think, because, you know, at least over it, here, nuance is not much appreciated. And, you know, it's much easier to slap a label on something and jump on your team side and, you know, win, root to win, even if the prize is, you know, more discord and more divisiveness. But it's difficult to have that conversation. And I would, you know, when I have these opportunities, I'm always engaged because it is an opportunity to hear different perspectives and learn something myself. Um, but I, sh I don't think them out as, as much as I probably should. Yeah, I'm going to say two things at once. So I, I've got to sort of choose one or the other. Um, in, in looking at the comments uh, on sort of some of the Twitter staff and the, the Facebook live feeds, I got the impression that there were a lot of men who were making excuses for Tony Robbins. Um, a lot of women too. Uh, well, that's what I was going to ask. Was it balanced or not? Because I, I don't know whether I was, a, I was just looking at through biased eyes in my, my, just myself. Um, was it balanced? I've, that's my impression that I, I probably actually might have heard from more women than I did from men. And I think that's not necessarily a statement about, you know, that, that there's more women who, that, you know, I don't think it's actually a, an objective evaluation of where it lies. I just think women are more willing um, to speak out against a woman. And, um, and I think men sort of feel like, well, that's, you know, we'll let the women hash that out because they're women. <laughs> I do think it's part of that. But no, I, I, I got quite a bit of pushback from men and women. And, and, and some of the women were just as nasty as some of the men. You know, there was, it was, and, and obviously I got great comments from a lot of men. And um, I certainly heard more great comments from women. Overwhelmingly, the positive comments came from women. Um, but the negative comments were pretty much evenly split between men and women. Interesting. So, um, you, uh, well, I, one of the things that really resonates for me uh, around you is, is the importance of justice um, for you. And justice for all. They taught me the Pledge of Allegiance when I was four years old, <laughs> and I really thought it meant something. Uh, for me, there's a, there's a distinction between justice and right. Uh, and it's, it's based on this idea that uh, justice is formed in the courts. It's formed by people, but right has a, a, a more elemental, a more fundamental. More subjective. Well, yes, and <laughs> it's a good challenge. Uh, I guess my assumption is that, that if you really get down to it, um, it is it isn't that subjective, um, but I may just be a dreamer on that. Yeah. Um, the, for me, the, I, I used to, and I do think this is a reflection of, you know, the country I grew up in and the, 
the racial element of the, the system of government we have, the institutionalized racism, where I had the luxury of believing that what I believed was right, um, that that was just a given, and that there was, you know, there's man's law and God's law. And, uh, and frankly, I'm, I don't, I'm not a believer in God anymore, but I was raised um, to believe in God. But, you know, there was that distinction that there is just what's right, and then there's, you know, what man can come up with with justice. Um, but I have grown to believe that what's right is very subjective, which is why justice is so important, because it does impose, or the goal, from my understanding of justice, was to impose rules that everybody knew were in place so everybody could abide by those rules and then if you broke the rules there was a setup there was a design system of addressing the violation that took the element of emotionalism and uh, you know and argument out of it making it as fair as any system run by men and women could be but i don't i, I no longer believe that right is as clear as i used to think it was but that's me yeah, I, I, I've been very influenced by Brian Stevenson um, and, and his work, you know, with children on death row and, and so on. And, um, you know, his reflections on, you know, if you're black, you're just so much less likely to have justice. Um, right. And that's wrong. That's just wrong. And what's and he may say this, I'm not familiar with him, but I think part of what resonates with me there is not only that if you're black in this country, you're much less likely to, to get real justice. There are so many barriers, reasons for that, that they, at almost every step of the way, the whole game is rigged against you. So that the, the racism that's part of that is not overt. So people are quite comfortable saying, well, I'm not a racist, he got a fair deal, I treated him or her fairly. And, and, but because it is, it, it's, it's so entrenched in almost every level of our culture that it, it, it's almost invisible. And it, it, it's heartbreaking to me on a lot of levels. That's something that, that is called justice is so unjust. You know, it, it's, it's offensive to me that you slap that label of justice on there and refuse to acknowledge all the different ways that it isn't, you know. Let me just ask one more question and then I'll, I'll <laughs> go because we're just following a thing on this. Um, we were very lucky last week to see um, Robin DiAngelo, who's, who was in London. You know, she's the author of that book, White Fragility and Why It's So Difficult to Talk to White People About Racism. And it was fascinating. Her, her book is fascinating for so many reasons. Uh, one, because when you actually do talk, and she, she gave so many examples of just talking about racism to whites, and, and the, the whole default is uh, based in a, a kind of sense of normality, that I'm white, therefore everybody else is different, uh, and actually below me somehow, but they're brought up so they don't realize that the water that, as a fish they're swimming in. Um, and what's been really interesting for, for, for me as I've explored this is if you just dis delete white and insert male, um, you, you get exactly the same conversation. You know, you, you became an attorney at law um, to, to deal with uh, 
um, victims of domestic violence and abuse. So you were very driven by that, I assume. Mm -hmm. Yes, that was the reason I went into law. Uh, and so that, uh, I'm, I'm sort of interested to hear that driver, you know, the, and, and that need for, that, that real need for, 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 for justice, if you, you know, use that word. Right. So I'm not sure where that I do honestly remember the Pledge of Allegiance being very inspiring to me. You know, I don't know if y'all know it, but it's like Pledge of Allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the Republic for which it stands, one nation, indivisible, under God, with liberty and justice for all. <laughs> and that last part, you know, it just whatever it resonated with me. And I thought, OK, well, that's the country I live in. You know, we're all about justice. <laughs> and um, and of course, you know, I, well, I grew up in a blue working class family, you know, I just, I, I could see injustice around me, but, and I thought, and my mother taught us that, you know, you have to, you have to stand up for, and be involved and, and give back and, um, and, and fight for what's right. She did teach us that. Um, so, you know, I, I, maybe that's where it came from, but it was, it was, it was always something I did and got me in trouble often, even as a child. It got me in trouble with my own mother, who like apparently wanted me to stand up for justice everywhere else, but not ever call her on it, which of course, as a teenager, we all do that. But um, I, I got into trouble in the military because of it, and um, I got into trouble uh, at in law school because of it. Not really trouble, but I was... I brought probably more attention to myself than I would have cared for because I was so willing to argue with certain professors about, you know, certain issues. And then when I got into law, I got into a lot of trouble over it. But it, it, it just, I, I've always felt like it's our patriotic duty um, to stand up for justice. And I also feel as first people who, you know, talk about this word freedom that it is our duty to challenge authority and to and keep power in check because if you if you submit to power and never challenge it never question then well what it's naturally just going to continue to grow so um, I just thought it was you know just part of my my obligation as a, a of a citizen of this country um, to keep this country strong, I had an obligation to stand up for justice and to do that. And going to law school was a way to learn the law and learn how to help a particularly vulnerable population, which, you know, even then I knew that they had a rough time in the justice system. I had no idea how really bad it was and continues to be. So, you know, I just, I just felt like it was what I was supposed to do. And still do to some degree. Very inspiring. But yeah, but I think also, like, it goes back to your point about the nuance. You know, how can you have these conversations in a country in the same way that in England we have our colonial history that very often doesn't get spoken about in an open honest way it's the same thing of these western powers and and facing what we've done to marginalized people um throughout hundreds of years and until that story is told in a different way and those people are given voice and we are we hear them and we confront the pain i i don't know if we'll ever really progress much further 
Yeah, I and I do agree, and I and I confront this more and more because you know that that indoctrination, which occurs to everyone, you know, into the culture that you're born into, and in the over here, um, very much that you know the Anglo-Saxon roots that we brought over here, this white, you know, Protestant, whatever, I'm not Protestant, but you know, that identity um, made us right and justified in, in our history. You know, it was okay to slaughter all the, the indigenous people <laughs> because, you know, we're white and, and it was, it was our right. And God has blessed us with this power and this authority and everyone. It, it's, you know, that's the way I was raised. And it just, when, when I, as I grew up and I matured and still am, right, this, this whole process of understanding what white privilege is and, and trying and starting to understand how, you know, that has affected my life and how I've had these advantages and understanding my part in the system, it's, it's unpleasant. Like talking to white people about white privilege and, and race is painful it's painful to me um and i wish there was a little um more patience i, I recognize that that's being white privilege asking for more patience <laughs> but it's um it, it is just it's not anything you're going to do overnight it's not something that somebody's going to come to you and say hey you're part of the problem and because of this white privilege thing and people are going to say oh yeah okay good i believe you it is something that takes time and, a, and an ability to be introspective, which I don't think is a skill everyone has, but um, that the idea that we're right because we're white is almost fundamental. It's, it's almost in my DNA and it is a struggle to recognize when that's coming into play in my own life because it, it's so subtle. You know, I'm suddenly in the middle of an argument with someone and I'm just insisting that I'm right. And there's finally a voice in my head that'll say, but why are you so sure <laughs> you're right? And a lot of times it's because I expect this person to agree with me for some reason or another, what their role, it might have something to do with the color of their skin. That's still just so hard for me to suss out that at least I'm asking the question, I guess. At least I have that little bit of awareness that it's like, which is what brought me to the idea that right is not always so clear. You know, what we think of as right can be very subjective. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it is important to step back and look at your context of right and, and what does that exclude and what does that, you know, internalize. And now I'm way off in the nuance, obviously. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's a difficult process. And, it's, and I think it's an even di more difficult conversation that we still need to have. I think it's incredibly important to have those conversations. And it's not going to change unless we have the conversations and we allow ourselves to have the conversations. And I'm rambling, but I do want to say that here's, and you may want to cut it from this eventually, but one of the most frustrating issues for me was recently the, the whole controversy over blackface. And, and I absolutely respect the fact that that is offensive. It's just like using, you know, certain terms that are offensive and people say, oh, well, I don't mean it that way. And I've always been, you know, well, but it offends people. So why do you have to use it? And I, I've adopted the same attitude about blackface. I can't possibly understand what that means. And I don't fully understand, you know, I do understand some of it, but I don't understand every context of it. But I just accept 
it's offensive. So I don't need to do it and I'm not going to defend it. But the, the discussion that, that evolved around that was, I thought very useful, but it keeps getting shut down. Like Megan Kelly tried to start that discussion and she got shut down and left her show because she tried to have a discussion about it. And I don't think that's useful. I think when people, white people engage in these behaviors, um, that that need to be talked about and need to have a different perspective of we got to have the discussion we can't demonize people simply because they are admitting like Liam Neeson just admitted that you know he had these horrible um reaction to a woman he knew who was raped by uh, apparently a, a, a black man and so he wanted to go out and do violence against any black man and in that process he was acknowledging how awful that was and yet he's been excoriated yeah. for having said it. And I, I don't understand how we're ever going to get through this if we don't allow people to admit their failings and, and then talk about that process. Mm -hmm. it's, it's frustrating to me. But it's also, very ironically, more evidence of how we're all just so much more alike than we are different. Because, you know, the, the need to um, come out on top and to be right and to minimize and diminish people based on some arbitrary characteristic is in all of us. It's there. It's just that, you know, I don't want to trade white racism for black racism or brown racism or female matriarchy for male patriarchy. I just want us to work towards the middle of how can we be more respectful and, and maybe it's not possible. Maybe it's the discussion that matters. I don't know. Sorry for rambling. No, it's, it's a very good ramble um, and a very easy to follow ramble because I think it reflects so much of the things that we spent doing last year in having dialogue spaces for people to really be able to see and hear different perspectives and to be able to voice those assumptions and those biases in a place of non-judgment. Because you're completely right. We, we all carry assumptions and biases, all of us, because we only have our own limited experience of the world. And then when we get in a room of non-judgment and we can share those experiences, that's when we can start to change in a condition that really supports positive change by allowing us just to listen and, and voice and understand and grow. And we just don't have those many of those spaces anywhere, I think, in the world right now. We're, we're so about judgment and blame and criticism to reinforce power structures. And that was something else I wanted to maybe talk to you about was about the language that we use and how that reinforces labels or power structures or or different types of relationships because obviously around sexual assault and abuse there's this are you a survivor are you a victim or, you know are you a target that language which can be very meaningless to someone who maybe hasn't experienced something but when you are when you are the person that's experienced something that language becomes very powerful and how do we navigate that not knowing who we might trigger or or what language we should use or shouldn't use. It's, it's, it's tricky. Yeah, and this is, another, this is another area where I get kind of frustrated, which is, it is it's also a very personal experience, right, to be a victim. Um, and how we each individually process that, how we experience it, how we get through it or don't get through it, very, very personal. Um, I am triggered by certain things that I've, I, I know I'll be triggered by, so I've learned to avoid them, which is probably not the best 
<laughs> that strategy. I should probably confront them. But it's I don't like Tony Robbins triggered me, right? He is he's a huge guy. I mean, I just you don't have, have any. I had no concept of how big he is until he's standing right in front of you. And also because I'm a tall woman, so I'm, I don't generally experience that, that there's some, someone who can overpower me physically like that so, so easily, you know. And that triggered me, but I don't, I don't hold him responsible for that. He, how is he supposed to know? He doesn't know me. He doesn't know what my experience. So I think there's a certain level of we need to be, we need to allow people um, to, I think we need to be more willing to speak up and say, Hey, don't do that. And this is something I learned in the, in the service actually was to say, don't say that to me. Don't say that in front of me. Um, I find that offensive. And I would declare that so that people would know because we make a lot of assumptions, right? About people do it all the time. I live in the South. I'm white. People make a lot of assumptions about what my politics are or, you know, what, what my racial attitude is. And very often, well, not very often anymore, but because it's so much less, acceptable but very often in my youth I would have to tell people don't use that language around me you know don't say that to me I don't agree with that so they would know I'm not part of that club and I don't want to be part of your club <laughs> and but you know nowadays if you say something that someone else finds offensive it's almost I mean we just don't allow people to have a discussion and and this idea of who's a victim and I think we've demonized the word victim and it bothers me it's it inherently I carry all the shame around about every time somebody said, Oh, she's a victim or he's a victim. I would feel this internal shame of, well, that's not me. I'm not going to be a victim, you know, because of the way they're talking about it. And I, I don't want to, I don't want to do that. So I'm absolutely, absolutely happy to say, yes, I am a victim of sexual abuse. I'm a victim of sexual harassment. Um, I'm a victim, victim of domestic violence in, I, in my own home growing up. Um, I'm a victim of those things. And, and I guess what I've made that word mean to me is something entirely different from what we've used it to mean, I think, more broadly in the culture, which is something shameful. For me, it is just a fact. That happened to me. And, and the fact that I was a victim means somebody else's shame, not mine. <laughs> um, but other people, you know, they use the word to mean it in a, well, poor you you're a pathetic creature and I just reject it. But I do think that that even that people who have been victimized have to find their own way through that. They have to define for themselves how they want to process that and get through it. And, and ultimately, you know, that is the objective to, to get through it and whatever you have to do, however you, you have to compartmentalize and, and understand what happened to you so that you can grow through it and beyond it. I think that's up to each individual and, and I'm off track. I'm sorry, but I do want to make the point that saying, Oh, you're acting like a victim. I absolutely reject that. I just, I, I think that's the absolute abuse of that term. You're acting like a victim because what they're really actually trying to do is say, telling someone you were refusing to hold yourself accountable because every time I hear that term used that way, they're telling someone who is truly making excuses for something they've done wrong and won't take responsibility for it. And that's an entirely different thing than being a victim because when you're a victim, you are absolutely not responsible for what happened to you. 
someone else has done something to you. So to use that word to tell someone, take responsibility for your own choices is an abuse of the term. Mm. My opinion. <laughs> yeah. There is also the element, uh, and I know this in myself, <clears throat> if, I, if I hear the victim uh, in someone else, it's very easy to trigger me uh, in remembering uh, the, 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 the abuse that I went through. And, and the shame of being a victim. And, and, and so I try and reject it. And I will make them wrong because I don't want them to make me feel. You know, it's, it's not what's happening. But because of how they are, it takes me into a place where I feel disempowered, where I feel bad. Ooh. And I, I don't want that. And that happened in me for a long time unconsciously. Yes. I think it still happens to me unconsciously and not necessarily in the, in the sexual abuse area where I've just become very good at processing that. But, you know, in the, in the sort of legal abuse area, I think I still struggle with that. Something I hadn't even considered, but I do think I, because I was all smug with myself for being, you know, so good at managing the sexual abuse aspects of, of victim, being victimized. I didn't think about how that also plays out in other areas of our lives where, you know, we suffer some huge wrong and then don't want to go back there. Mm. I think I'm still very much in the midst of that. Mm. Mm. And it really comes back to the nuance because we, we have certain cultural narratives that, that label the victim that are very clear. And like you said, other experiences that are very personal that we don't often realize, yeah, the effects that they have on us. And, and what we can carry around and therefore then what we start to get triggered by or project onto others. And, and that again comes back to why we need to just sit and listen to each other and be in dialogue so that we can start to notice our own thought patterns and inquire into right. why, why am I feeling that? Why am I thinking that? Where is that coming from? And I think that's a real theme that's woven through our conversations today is just stopping and becoming aware and then being able to question and, and then being able to share that in a way that you, you, you don't feel the judgment or shame of others so that we can all grow. Yeah, it, and that's, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking of um, that, how that process, like you said, sometimes we're not aware of it. And, um, and the first thing that came to my mind was how good I am at compartmentalizing, but, and that I think is sort of one side of the, the story that I tell myself, which is I'm really good at compartmentalizing. And if you're going to mess with my compartmentalization, I'm going to shut you down. <laughs> if you're going to try to go in there and open up one of those boxes I've put away, um, I'm, you know, I'm going to shut you down. And, you know, I, I, I recognize that differently in, the, in helping and talking to people about, you know, child sexual abuse. But um, actually, I realized in processing being disbarred that um, I had used that in many ways to work on my own issues to sort of make, you know, how you, you can't fix what happened to you in the past, but you can try and make it right in the present. Mm -hmm. So I think there was a part of that where I was avoiding my own pain and my own, um, uh, my own trauma by trying to help others with theirs. So there was that element as well. And then, 
the I am really good at compartmentalization. It's a little bit distressing sometimes how good I am at it, but um, but I I do recognize in myself that resistance when someone is trying to or even not trying they're just trying to talk to me about something and for whatever reasons it's it's knocking on one of those those closed doors and I, that tendency to want to shoo them off like take control charge the conversation and redirect it in a way that's safe for me but not necessarily what they want yeah i'd still do that like and do you have i mean you obviously have an awareness of this but do you have any um practices that you do like meditation or spending time in nature or yoga anything that you do that you find helps you in this process this lifelong journey of processing and developing and growing um honestly i i i write i used i used to write a lot in my journal and i've always found that very helpful you know just writing your thoughts out and then it, for whatever reasons, it's, it's like it forces you to have a conversation with yourself. And, um, and I've always found that really helpful. I do try to meditate, but I'm really terrible at it. <laughs> it's just, it is, it is uh, yeah, uh, if I can get through 10 minutes of sitting still and not, you know, being completely overwhelmed by the madness in my head, I'm, I've done well. And, uh, but I write mostly. And, uh, and I garden for sanity. Yeah. And I'm not good at gardening either. Like, <laughs> just, I kill stuff right and left. But there's something about being out there and, with, you know, your hands in the dirt. And, yeah. and it's just soothing to me. Yeah. And again, but the, the process of, I, I write. And if, if I can have regular conversations with smart people, I, that helps me as well. Um, but... Right now, I, we're, I, don't, I don't allow enough time for that. Mm. My sister is really just scary smart, and we sometimes have these really good conversations, um, and that's good for me because she's, she gets nuance really well, but I don't get to talk to her enough either. So that's me. I'm very verbal, if you hadn't noticed. <laughs> but just going back to the gardening comment, I think, it, again, it's a reflection of this, these somewhat invisible cultural narratives it's like well, why do you have to be good at something that you really enjoy well, oh, that's an excellent point <laughs> i guess i always feel like when i say i garden people are going to say oh well yeah you have a beautiful garden and i'm thinking oh, no, lots of dead stuff in there <laughs> but the process of, of it is, is meaningful to you so. it is so yeah i do it and you're right i don't have to be good at it <laughs> good thing. where do you see uh, power going and 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 how how can we be more enlightened in the way that we we live in in this this place where it's just so easy to, to lash out yeah. you know it's it's it is the irony to me that it, over here and i i'm i'm sure that you know the rhetoric may be different but the values are the same this idea of egalitarianism and individuality and justice for all um, in that within that it has become nothing but rhetoric and what we really have been indoctrinated into at some in some way is um, an idea that power um, is the ultimate goal and I 
I understand that that's, I understand. My frustration with the current leadership in this country is that it's about winning at all costs. And that's from the ground up, right? The leaders we have currently reflect something that's going on at a much more fundamental level. I've been saying that for years, that the problem is not up there. The problem is down here. And um, we have become lazy and don't want to think for ourselves. We want to join a group that already has a set narrative that we can just adopt as our own. And then we want to go out and, and win every argument. And it's not about logic and it's not about facts. It's, or even nuance. It's about, this is the rhetoric. It's my rhetoric. And I'm not going to back off of it until I've beaten you into submission. However, I, can and that includes literally beating people into submission in some in some circles and i don't think that we're going i, I think that's probably a, a, a theme that our governments have tried to have tried to address through laws and constitutions and that people continually lose sight of that lesson that if we're left to our own instincts, our instincts are going to be to beat everybody into submission or join whichever leader we think can do it for us. Um, but there is a there is an unwillingness to think for ourselves. Um, there is a need to be right, um, and I may be using that word differently than you you use it. But but you know to have your idea. Um, be unchallenged, not even to come out on top in the argument, but to actually absolutely brook no challenge. Um, and I find that abhorrent. And I, it just nothing I am ever, hopefully, will ever just accept is that I'm not allowed to say I disagree. <laughs> and um, but that I think that's where our leadership now is. No matter how what we say about what good leaders are, I think internally, um, people gravitate towards the biggest brute in the room, and that's where we are. And I, in our own very small organization, we're we're twenty total, twenty of us. Um, it's still very challenging um, to to be at the top of an organization like uh, just 20 and be the leader that I would like to be and to behave in conformity with the ideals I say, you know, I, I believe in because I think is too much. It's too easy for it, for us to not do the hard work of, of embracing the ideals of, whatever ideals are instead of just re devolving in the moment to, well, I can hurt you in some way because I have more power than you. So I'm going to use my power to hurt you because I can not because it's justice, but because I have that power and I can use it and no one can stop me. So I think we have to stop thinking of, of it, of winning and, and want to be more engaged in understanding and compromise and collaboration. And I don't see any support for that over here in this country, particularly right now. <laughs> Very demoralizing. Okay. Can we end on, on a hopeful hat? Where would you start or what would you like to see happen or? Education. Education. I would start in our schools. Yeah. I would start, 
in our schools and, and interestingly teach a lot more history um, because we don't teach in a much more diverse history, not just the history of the winners, but the history of the losers, the losers. <laughs> I would teach, I, we, we are not, we are failing our children by not teaching them properly. And that's where I would start. Yeah, we have a, a, a movement to decolonize education or decolonize lots of different aspects of our That world. word, decolonize, yeah. that's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, we don't, you know, the, we're, we were the ones that were colonized according to our history. You know, we, we, were, we are the victims in that because, you know, you know you, the, the Brits were the problem. Now we're the best and the best. You know, that's the underlying message that you get in school. Obviously, you know, once you get older, you understand there's more nuance there. But that is, that's sort of the, the game that gets played over and over again. But somehow we're always the, you know, the ones that overcame the, the, the terrible savages or the evil British government and, you know, the crown that was whatever. That's the constant message that you get what we got when we were kids and you know i i we need to, to change that narrative to you know what colonization is and what it does and the price that we all pay for it absolutely that's a powerful note to yes. end on i think yes nanine thank you so much thank you oh. it's been amazing yes. thank you for having me it's it's it, i really enjoyed it and uh, i look forward to seeing more of what y'all are doing yeah. because um, it leadership is something that I struggle with. You know, it's not anything that was naturally to me. And I would say for me personally, being a better leader requires patience. Okay. Yes. But you still, you can speak truth to power. So you're a different type of leader. Maybe you just need to think about the type of leader you want to become, not replicating the models yeah. that you currently have. Sometimes the hardest thing is speaking truth to your own power, right? Yeah. That's why people and, avoid it. Yeah, <laughs> but we are all powerful in our own way that doesn't need to impose on anyone else's power. Yeah. Well, but, well, I appreciate it. It was quite pleasant, and I look forward to seeing what y'all are doing more and you know, participating, perhaps, in more of what y'all do. Yeah, we'd love to come and do a dialogue. <laughs> I would love to just learn from what y'all are doing because, you know, I, I, I'm interested and I'm, it's one of the things that is my challenge is, is to, to grow into a better leader. So that's what intrigued me about the invitation was like, oh, really? <laughs> what are y'all doing? So it was, I'm looking forward to seeing more of it. Thank you for okay. having me. We'll keep you in touch and, yeah. and um, good luck with wherever you go next. We'll, we'll follow with interest. Well, I'll follow y'all with interest now, too. Thank you so much. <laughs> okay. okay. Bye. 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 Y'all take care.